Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Ritual. So, y'all, remember how I was in the hospital back in July? Well, it's time for me to admit that it was because I ate bad sushi. So embarrassing. I should have listened to my gut and not bought sushi at that random grocery store. Afterward, my stomach was so messed up from like weeks of antibiotics that I knew I needed to get a new probiotic added to my regimen. That's when my friend told me about Ritual Vitamins. They have Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one clinically studied prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic that can help support a balanced gut microbiome. I started taking Ritual right away, and the upset stomach that I was getting most afternoons went away. I love that Ritual packs so much good stuff into one minty capsule. And these vitamins don't need to be refrigerated, so it's like really easy to take with you when you travel, and y'all know I travel a lot. It's time to listen to your gut. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com backslash unruly to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y for 30% off. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Castellanos-Clark, and today I'm covering Alfred Carlton Gilbert. He was a toy inventor and Olympic athlete and often remembered as the man who saved Christmas. But before we jump into Gilbert's life and how he saved Christmas, I first have to thank all of the paying subscribers on Substack who helped me make this podcast possible. Y'all are the best, and this podcast wouldn't still be going without you. If you like this show and you want more of it, please become a paying subscriber over on Substack. When you upgrade, you'll get access to exclusive content, merch, and behind-the-scenes updates on the upcoming Unruly Figures book. So when you're ready to do that, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. All right, let's hop into it. Alfred Carlton Gilbert, or as he preferred, A.C. Gilbert, was born on February 15, 1884 in Salem, Oregon. He was the middle boy in a family of three, but he wasn't particularly close to either of his siblings. His parents fostered a really religious atmosphere. Um, according to his memoir, they did devotions every morning and Sundays were solely dedicated to religious activity with like neither work nor played allowed in the home. Um, Gilbert, quote, found it something of a strain because he'd never been able to sit still very long. Nevertheless, he described his home life as, quote, the happiest home anyone could imagine. Instead of being religious, young Gilbert was extremely active. At age seven, he won a tricycle race, which apparently cemented his lifelong philosophy that, quote, life is a game and the important thing is to win. Often unimpressed by school and unconcerned with his grades, he collected friends, hobbies, and it sounds like messes. In his autobiography, he writes, My mother's attitude and fortitude were even more amazing. She just had to look on as I repeatedly tried to break my neck and cluttered up the house, yard, and barn with strange pets, athletic paraphernalia, the accessories of various hobbies, and a gang of friends. 
He enjoyed all manner of sports from hunting and building things on the family farm um, and including like a play fire station for himself and his friends. One of his early hobbies was magic and sleight of hand. One of his favorite early memories um, that he included in his autobiography um, was the, a, a performance of Herman the Great, a traveling magician who he described as, quote, on par with Houdini. He became good enough, Gilbert that is, um, that he used magic performances to earn money to pay his way through college. After graduating, he started a business that manufactured and sold magic tricks. And interestingly, he wasn't the first in his family to be associated with magic. His very distant great-great-great-whatever, etc., it's like seven greats, um, grandmother was actually hanged for witchcraft in Wethersfield, Connecticut. He doesn't state her name, but I took like a quick glance at the list of people convicted of witchcraft in Connecticut's history and found a Lydia Gilbert who was, quote, probably executed in 1654, but that was in Windsor, Connecticut. Um, there were only two women ever convicted and executed in Wethersfield, which is the city he named, um, Mary Johnson and Joan Carrington. So perhaps one of them was Gilbert's distant relation. Okay, I know that's like a digression, sorry, but I just find it really fascinating when rebellious people have rebels in their family history. Like, is it a gene that they're passing down, family socialization? You know, one of Gilbert's other ancestors um, also married Daniel Shays of the famous Shays Rebellion during the U.S. Revolution. So, I don't know, I just find it kind of funny and weird. So anyway, Gilbert progressed through school, finding it easy but tedious. When he was eight, the family moved to Moscow, Idaho. Things were a bit unstable for a moment. They lived in Moscow for two years, moved back to Oregon for a year, and then back to Moscow when Gilbert was probably about 11 years old. Now, after this move back to Idaho, he famously ran away to be a performer. It started like this. He'd put up a punching bag in the barn, and someone in town realized that he was pretty good at it. When a performing like troupe came through town, someone mentioned to the manager that Gilbert was pretty strong, and the manager hired him at $15 a week, which was a fortune for a young boy in the 1890s. Quote, I knew what my parents would say, so I didn't ask them, he said, of the decision to leave town with the manager. He described the other men in the show as extremely nice, so he felt safe, and off he went. He traveled with them for about a week, and they put up posters with a drawing of Gilbert and the claim that he was, quote, the champion boy bag puncher of the world. Fortunately, his father caught up with them and convinced Gilbert to come back, assuring him that a much more fruitful future than performing with a punching bag awaited him. Now, a lot of people portrayed this as a very, like, charming tale of a boy who ran off to join the circus. And it sort of is that, but I want to be clear that Gilbert actually joined a minstrel show, that bastion of racial stereotypes. It's unclear to me whether or not he actually performed in blackface, but his co-performers certainly did. And in the 1950s, when he originally wrote his memoir, he didn't seem bothered by this fact. Obviously, today we find this a lot more distasteful, so I just want to be clear that that's what's happened here instead of, like, sugarcoating it. So then, back in Moscow, Gilbert saw people pole vaulting for the first time at the University of Idaho. He picked up the new hobby immediately and became extremely good at it. Soon after, his older brother started university at Pacific University back in Oregon, and after a year, Gilbert decided that he wanted to move back to Oregon with his brother. So he saved up money he earned working on the railroad and enrolled at the university's nearby preparatory school, Tualatin Academy. Tulatin was a rare mixed-gender boarding school, and it was there that he met his future wife, then named Mary Thompson. 
Every night that she had choir practice, he would sneak out of his room past curfew to walk her back to her room, which I think is very cute. Perhaps unsurprisingly, her family pulled her out and they moved to Seattle after two years of this. Um, But Mary and Gilbert stayed in touch and they got married several years later, which is pretty sweet, I think. So after graduating from Tulatan, Gilbert enrolled at Forest Grove, now called Pacific University. He studied a little harder than he had before, but was still more concerned with athletics. He won over a hundred trophies and ribbons while enrolled there, mostly in boxing, wrestling, track and field, and football. He broke records, including the world chitting record, aka pull-ups. The record had been 39 pull-ups set in 1888 by an, a man named N.W. Mumford, but Gilbert did 40 in 1901 when he was 17 years old. He was later posthumously inducted into the university's um, Athletic Hall of Fame. While at the university, he also started petitioning for a better gym. He had to travel down to Portland to go to the YMCA once a week, because the university didn't really have a gym of its own. He also started coaching some boys on the wrestling team. And all of this athletic success led to him attending a summer term at the School of Physical Education in New York in 1902, which is where he befriended a bunch of doctors and decided to pursue a medical degree. In 1904, he transferred to Yale to study medicine and found himself intellectually challenged really for the first time. He described his grades as average and had to give up most of the sports he was doing to keep up with his schoolwork. However, he did keep up with pole vaulting, setting several records while in school. In 1907, he took time off of his final year at Yale to train and travel down to Philadelphia to try out for the Olympics. He made it and was off to Brighton to train for the 1908 Olympic Games. He actually set a world record during tryouts with a leap of 12 feet, seven and three quarters inches. But once in the UK, there was a big debacle and declarations of bad sportsmanship at the games that year. The night before the pole vaulting competition, the English hosts ruled that pole vaulters could not use a hole in the ground for their poles. They had to use a spike attached to the end of their pole instead. That was the English way to pole vault. But in fact, only English pole vaulters used spikes. Everyone else, literally in the entire world, used holes. Well, the English and one single Canadian named Edward Archibald. Now, the American team took this as a blatant attempt to ensure that Archibald won gold. So Gilbert went out early the next morning, bought a hatchet, and dug a hole himself next to where, like, the spike-using pole vaulters would be um, putting their pole in the ground. Well, of course, he was stopped, and there was like an attempt to disqualify him from the games entirely. So Gilbert demanded that the rules be read out loud, which someone finally complied with, and the rules made no mention of holes in the ground or spikes at all. I think he thought that that would matter, but the English hosting committee had already decided, and he was told that he had to vault with a spike in his pole, or not vault at all. So the event went forward, Gilbert did well, advancing through the heats and eventually winning the finals. But the judges had another plan. With a last minute rule change that has never been enforced since, the judges said that in order to actually win, Gilbert had to beat out the highest recorded jump of the games, which was 12 feet two inches set by one of his teammates during prelims. So like it wasn't during the final round, so it shouldn't have really counted because it was supposed to be the highest um, anyone made it during finals. should have determined the winner, if uh, hopefully that makes sense. 
So Gilbert made it. He, he jumped to the 12 feet 2 inches. So the judges decided that that didn't count either. It would only tie him with the guy who had jumped that high during prelims, despite the fact that that guy hadn't even been in the top three in the finals. But suddenly he was like co-winning gold with Gilbert because suddenly it was like the highest jump of the entire Olympic game. I don't know, season is not the right word, but you know what I mean. It, it really kind of didn't make any sense. So Gilbert agreed, though, and the judges set the pole to 12 feet 6 inches, telling him he had to clear that if he wanted to win gold on his own, which is kind of ridiculous because that's not really how pole vaulting has ever been measured as far as I know. Normally, you just have to beat the last highest jump. So technically, 12 feet 2 inches and a quarter should have won the gold for him. But they were saying now, no, he had to beat 12 feet 6 inches, which he had never done with a spike in his pole. It was blatant favoritism, and I don't think they could really get away with this today. So, of course, Gilbert couldn't clear that, not when he was vaulting with an unfamiliar spike that he said made him feel like he, quote, didn't know where he was when he took off and he felt as awkward as a calf in the air. The event was declared a time for the first time in Olympic history, something which didn't happen again until the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. So Gilbert's co-winner told Gilbert to go to the ceremony alone, which makes a lot of people think that Gilbert won the medal alone, but it is on record that it, um, as a tie. He claimed in his memoir that the medal, quote, must have carried a jinx because it was stolen when he got back to the U.S. In his memoir, Gilbert acknowledged that the whole ordeal stuck with him. He grew uh, maybe more than a bit bitter over it, really, and that's going to come back later. I mean, he was happy that he won gold, but also never competed again. While traveling in Paris after the games, he bought 50 bamboo poles for $1.25 each and brought them back to New Haven. He sold them to colleges for $25 each, making about $1,100, which is nearly $37,000 today. After that, he finished school and he married Mary Thompson. Despite receiving his medical degree, Gilbert never put it to use. In his fourth year at Yale, um, he had met John Petrie, or maybe Petrie, but I think it's Petrie, um, who worked as a mechanic in a factory in New Haven. Petrie was interested in magic tricks and had heard that Gilbert was paying his way through Yale with magic shows and teaching um, magic to kids. It was Petrie who had the idea to first box up some of Gilbert's magic tricks into like little kits with instructions and sell them to students. Their business was born. With the money that he made from selling the bamboo poles, Gilbert invested in the idea that he and Petri had, expanding it into a mail-order catalog for professional magic tricks. They called it the Misto Manufacturing Company, basing it in New Haven, Connecticut. In addition to his own money, his father loaned him $5,000 to help build like a proper manufacturing facility. They started selling quite successfully, even opening a store in New York City at 29th and Broadway. Eventually, they, they developed hundreds of magic tricks and sold them around the nation, attracting both professionals and amateurs. But not interested in coasting on his laurels, Gilbert began to think about making other toys. In 1911, he watched steel girders be lifted into place by cranes, and he had an idea. Why not make toys for boys that allowed them to build new things? He developed, tested, and released the Misto Erector Structural Steel Builder in 1913, which was very quickly and understandably shortened to Erector Set. With it, boys could make hundreds of toys. There were ideas in an instruction booklet, but, quote, the hope was that after a short while, an inventive boy would start making his own things instead of just copying models from the manual. 
it was a hit becoming a household name in just a few years. This popularity was probably helped along by the fact that, at least according to Gilbert, the Erector set was the first toy ever advertised in a national magazine, instead of just through like toy shops and catalogs. They sold for around $2 and featured boys building working train tracks on the box, which must have like been very exciting to kids at the time. There's actually a photo of the box um, on Substack for anyone interested. The marketing slogan for the set was, quote, Hello boys, make lots of toys. Gilbert began hosting erector building competitions with certificates from the Gilbert Institute of Engineering, going to participants and prizes going to the most impressive structures built using an erector set. One year he gave away a German Shepherd puppy, and another he gave away a Shetland pony. I'm sure the kids were excited, but you have to wonder how excited the parents were about receiving a new mouth to feed. In 1915, the Erector Set won a gold medal at the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco. And one of the challenges to making an Erector Set, and and many of the toys that Gilbert would pioneer and produce, was that there was no manufacturing precedent for it. He often had to develop the machinery to make the toy at the same time that he had to develop the toy itself. I mean, there was like machinery to make steel girders, of course, but not on a scale small enough to be played with by kids. Now, I know very little about manufacturing, um, but I know enough to know that this is interesting and rare. Like today, people can invent a new type of doll or building set, but there are precedents to making it. You can program a machine to cut wood or pour plastic or whatever, like into a different mold. But when Gilbert was inventing, even the machinery wasn't around yet. Another pioneering idea of Gilbert's was to emphasize child psychology in advertising his toys to adults. The 1914 booklet accompanying the Erector set read, quote, Our new educational idea, which is the result of a study of child psychology, is developing a new angle of vision upon education. We find that the element of fun and pleasure has a wonderful effect in stimulating the inventive faculties which lie dormant in the child. Why not develop them in a sort of subconscious way? I mean, he was saying this and using it to advertise at a time when child psychology was like really not in the minds of most adults. Um, Most people didn't really think of children as anything other than or separate from really small adults. Um, So this is it's really interesting that he's using child psychology to sell these sets essentially to the parents. And this focus on like children's learning would become a really important part of his career. Now, around this time in 1912 or so, Gilbert's father bought John Petrie out of his share of the company. According to Gilbert's autobiography, there was no friction about this transition. Petrie was more interested in the magic side of the business, and he eventually spun off to run his own company focusing on professional magicians. However, I do wonder if it was just a coincidence that Gilbert waited until Petrie had died before putting out his autobiography. I mean, it might really have been a smooth transition. Gilbert has only good things to say about Petri in his memoir. But I guess there's a chance that he waited to publish until he could be sure that Petri wasn't going to issue any statements about how amicable or not this split really was. In any case, the Erector set made Gilbert moderately famous and very rich, and the Misto Manufacturing Company was renamed the A.C. Gilbert Company in 1916. On June 9th of that same year, Gilbert founded the Toy Manufacturers of America, an association which still today represents the interests of all companies associated with, like, youth entertainment. 
Today, their mission is to be, quote, the industry's voice on the developmental benefits of play, promoting play's positive impact on childhood development to consumers and media through our Genius of Play initiative, end quote. Now, behind the scenes, Gilbert was working on sets of more explicitly educational toys, including chemistry sets and an electric experiment set. They would not be produced for several years, in part because of World War I, um, and they had to work out the kinks as well, but the idea was interesting right off the bat. What was also interesting was that Gilbert explicitly did not want these sets in schools. Despite receiving okay grades, I guess his own education was a bad memory because he was afraid that if kids associated any of his toys with school, quote, they'd think that they were just as deadly dull as the rest of school and would have nothing to do with them, end quote. But it was this interest in educational toys that led to Gilbert's most infamous toy, the Atomic Energy Laboratory, sold in 1950. It has gone down in history as one of the most dangerous toys ever produced because it contained real, actual, honest-to-God samples of, quote, uranium-bearing ores, autonite, torbernite, uraninite, and cardinonotite. Sorry, I, I may not be pronouncing this correctly. Now, I wish that I could say that this was all an innocent mistake and that no one knew uranium was dangerous yet. But first of all, the toy was sold with a comic strip called Learn How Dagwood Splits the Atom, written by General Leslie Groves, director of the Manhattan Project. So clearly it was openly associated with the devastation of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. And second of all, the higher incidence of lung cancer among uranium miners had already been noticed as early as 1879, and by 1930, people already suspected that uranium was the source of the problem. The kids who were gifted the atomic energy kit might have learned a lot. I mean, the kit came with a Geiger counter, a Wilson cloud chamber, a spintharoscope, and an electroscope. But they were ultimately exposed to U-238, which has been linked with Gulf War syndrome, cancer, leukemia, and a host of other serious medical conditions. Interestingly, Gilbert says that the U.S. government encouraged his company to make the toy. Gilbert writes, quote, The government thought that our set would aid in public understanding of atomic energy and stress its constructive side. We had the great help of some of the country's best nuclear physicists and worked closely with MIT in its development. On the one hand, I'm glad that MIT was involved, so it sounds like someone knew what they were doing. On the other hand, why were none of the country's best nuclear physicists putting their foot down about the danger this toy posed? Now, in his memoir, Gilbert makes an interesting and very carefully worded claim, so I'm going to repeat the full quote here. It says, There was nothing phony about our atomic energy laboratory. It was genuine, and it was also safe. We used radioactive materials in the set, but none that might conceivably prove dangerous. Now, I find might conceivably prove dangerous to be somewhat strange wording. It's like they realized the risk and pulled the toy to avoid testing whether or not it really was dangerous. As far as I know, there hasn't been a study of the long-term effects of this toy on the children who got it, but I do think it's telling that the toy was only sold for one year. Gilbert claims that this was an expense issue, that even priced at $49.50, they were taking a loss on the toy. He also notes that the toy wasn't suitable for younger kids, which the rest of their line was aimed at. 
In fact, Columbia University bought five of the kits for their chemistry department. Apparently, it was well-suited to undergrads. They did, however, and by they, I mean Gilbert and his company, they adapted some of the laboratory to their largest chemistry kit, including supposedly, quote, safe radioactive ore, as well as the manual and the spintharoscope. This last tool is proof that it was still dangerous, though, at least to me. A spintharoscope records, quote, results of radioactive disintegration on a fluorescent screen. This disintegration of the nuclear ore is the dangerous part. Now, according to an article in Time, however, the toy was dropped after, quote, a flood of protests claiming that boys would build actual atomic bombs with the kit. This claim does not make it into his memoir, either because Gilbert thought it was ludicrous or because he didn't want to call attention to it. He was writing only a few years after this whole debacle. I have a feeling that it's more the first issue, to be honest. I don't really believe kids could have made a real bomb with the kit, but I can also see how parents and the general public would be very concerned about this in 1950. Now, unfortunately for Gilbert, it seems to be this dangerous toy that the general public associates with his name most. That story is how I first learned about him. However, his epithet, the man who saved Christmas, came several years before the release of his dangerous toy. Now, the year was 1917, and the U.S. had finally entered World War I in April. The National Council of Defense converted factories of all stripes to aid in the war effort, including some of Gilbert's toy factories. However, the National Council of Defense also shut down all quote-unquote non-essential manufacturing in order to um, preserve materials for the war effort. This ban included many toy factories. Overnight, companies became worried that they'd go out of business, ruining Christmas for American children. Now, the council told parents to buy Liberty Bonds for their kids instead, but let's be honest, what child understands a war bond well enough to get excited about one for Christmas? So Gilbert, as the president of the Toy Manufacturers of America, protested this restriction. Somehow, through his various connections, he managed to get a 15-minute meeting with the council, so he went to Washington to present the case of the Toy Manufacturers of America. Instead of making an impassioned speech or giving the members um, of the council like numbers of how this would economically devastate this entire sector of industry, instead of doing any of that, Gilbert gave them toys. Behind closed doors inside the Navy building, Secretary of War Newton D. Baker, Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels, Secretary of the Interior Franklin K. Lane, and Secretary of Commerce William C. Redfield got down on the ground and played with Gilbert's toys while he explained to them the educational value that toys had. Quote, The greatest influences in the life of a boy are his toys. A boy wants fun, not education. Yet through the kind of toys American toy manufacturers are turning out, he gets both. The American boy is a genuine boy, and he wants genuine toys. He wants guns that really shoot, and that is why we have given him air rifles from the time he was big enough to hold them. It is because of toys they had in childhood that the American soldiers are the best marksmen on the battlefields of France. America is the home of toys that educate as well as amuse, that visualize to the boy his future occupations, that start him on the road to construction and not destruction, that as fully as public schools or a Boy Scout system, exert the sort of influences that go on to form right ideals and solid American character. End quote. It worked. The council backed off of their ban on toy manufacturing. Apparently, Redfield was, quote, enamored with a steam engine, saying, I learned the rudiments of engineering on an engine like this. 
when it came out that this is that Gilbert had basically kind of single-handedly um, ensured that toy manufacturers could keep making toys in time for Christmas. He was lauded in the press for saving the holiday for America's children. The full text of an article from the Boston Post has been transcribed into his memoir. It's worth picking up for just that, honestly, because it's hard to find online. Um, but Gilbert turned down the phrase, saying the toys did it. Nevertheless, the majority of Gilbert's factories were turned over to the war effort. They made parts for machine guns and gas masks, but to Gilbert, the most important part was making Colt 45s as part of a subcontract from Winchester. After the war, the educational kits finally went on the market. They were a huge success, and a Yale professor would later claim that 70% of his students became interested in science through an AC Gilbert kit. Gilbert also started focusing on a radio set, known then as a crystal set, In 1928, Gilbert's toy company sponsored the first sports broadcast ever heard on national radio, and he was the master of ceremonies for it. He interviewed several celebrity athletes, including Babe Ruth. There is a photo of that on the subsec as well. Throughout this time, Gilbert's wife Mary was raising their three children, though you wouldn't know that the kids existed from his autobiography. Gilbert used his downtime to breed German shepherds and hunt, seemingly only rarely really spending time with his family. At least that's how it comes off. He built an enormous estate near New Haven that he named Paradise. He used it to hunt. And though he claims in his autobiography that he has left out his family in a bid for privacy, it comes off as a little egomaniacal, especially since the book is named after that home called Paradise, but his home life is otherwise absent. The final pages of the book include a list titled Notable Events in the Life of A.C. Gilbert. His wife and children are not mentioned at all. Somehow, Gilbert found time to help with the Olympic Games in 1928, 1932, and 1936. He was no longer competing as an athlete, but he went along as the chef de mission of the team. Basically, it seems like he was in charge of like morale and making sure everyone behaved. Now, the 36 games caused quite a lot of controversy as they were being held in Berlin. Hitler had come to power after Berlin was chosen for the games and with his persecution of Jewish people living in Germany already underway, a lot of teams were in favor of protesting the Olympics that year. However, Gilbert insisted that they should go, acknowledging in his memoir that he was somewhat against the tide with that opinion. It doesn't seem like he was anti-Semitic. It seems like he... He really believed that American attendance would, quote, put the Germans on their best behavior. He thought that if the U.S. protested, they'd be just as bad as the Germans who were persecuting Jewish people. Honestly, I'm really surprised that he included this opinion in his autobiography. The attendance of national teams like the U.S. legitimized the Nazis. Many people think that the world kind of learned its lesson after the full human rights abuses of the Holocaust were revealed in terms of participating in the Olympics um, because the mistakes made in 1936 led to the Olympic boycotts of 2008 and 2014. Now, I'm even more surprised he included this next statement too. Quote, I must say right now that the games were conducted as well as they have ever been, to my knowledge, and in the opinion of many Olympics officials. The German people were kind, considerate, and understanding. The German judges were scrupulously fair. Now, While the organization of the games was lauded by a lot of people, it's ridiculous to call the judges fair. Many cited German favoritism leading to Germany winning the lion's share of medals that year. And honestly, this comes off so badly in light of 
everything about Germany in the 19th, late 1930s and 1940s. Um, and I want to I want to bring it up because it feels like it's a weird dig at the 1908 Olympics. Like I said earlier, Gilbert really remained bitter for the rest of his life about the blatant favoritism from the English judges when he competed. It was a poor choice on his part to let his bitterness blind him to the reality of what was going on in 1936. But he is not the first or the last person to allow themselves that kind of blindness. And I think we have a lot or a little or something to learn from what Gilbert is saying here and what that kind of allowed him to believe. Now, most biographies of Gilbert sort of peter out around 1938. That year, he bought the rights to the American Flyer trains, and he kept working and inventing toys, including in 1950, the infamous Atomic Energy Lab that I mentioned earlier. I mean, during his lifetime, he would eventually hold 150 patents, though none were really as, like, groundbreaking as some of his early work. I do, though, want to note that um, Gilbert was a pretty good employer for the time. He is often credited with being one of the first employers in the U.S. to offer maternity leave as well as free legal advice for employees. Some try to claim that he was the first employer to offer benefits. But that sounds like too broad of a claim for me to like confidently repeat it because how does one measure benefits like writ large? Um, There are, however, some indicators that maybe Gilbert stopped being as generous as he got older. Like, despite the company making millions per year, there are reports that floor workers in the factory weren't paid well. Nevertheless, at least at one point, Gilbert was explicitly concerned about worker satisfaction and wanted them to have, quote, the security of steady employment, as well as good wages and pleasant working conditions. But according to his memoir, 90% of the Gilbert Company's business was done leading up to Christmas. There were usually a few weeks a year in January or February when they couldn't really start manufacturing toys yet because they'd run out of places to store them for 11 months. So instead of laying off all his like floor factory workers and then rehiring them, which was obviously a pain for everyone, the workers especially, Um, Gilbert explicitly sought to invent something that could be sold in the summer, so that there would still be work to do in January, but the factories would still be able to run for the Christmas sales. So he eventually created a small electric fan and sold it for $5, a huge saving over what was on the market at the time. So in that way, he was able to retain employees year-round, giving them a little bit more job security and income security, which I think is like... It's interesting to me that his motivation was explicitly taking care of employees, not trying to just, like, make more money. Obviously, today, there would be other ways around this drop in production. Machine maintenance, vacation, better storage, more year-round toy buying going on anyway. But I really, I genuinely think it's interesting that Gilbert was explicitly thinking about this stuff in the 19-teens, which if you know much about labor history, then you already know it was not a particularly good time to be a blue-collar worker in factories in the U.S. And then I also want to note one more thing here. In order to make those fans inexpensive and lightweight, Gilbert and one of his employees, an engineer named John Lands, made the first successful enamel-coated wires. Other manufacturers had tried but had failed. Gilbert and Lance were the first to do it successfully. And insulating wires this way protects them and makes them like more thermal and chemical resistant. Today, enamel-coated wires are still widely used. In 1954, Gilbert retired. His son, Albert Jr., became the CEO of the company. This was perhaps not the best decision. Albert Jr. was not close to his father and really only ever worked in the family business to please him. 
Gilbert, on his part, didn't do a lot of successor planning, and so Albert Jr. was not ready to take on the business. He was an engineer and an intellectual, not a businessman. As soon as Gilbert died in 1961, Albert Jr. sold the family's remaining shares in the company to a man named Jack Rather. The company went out of business just a few years later. I guess Jack Rather was not a good businessman either. On January 24, 1961, Gilbert passed away after two heart attacks. His legacy remains strongly aligned with athletics and children's toys. A museum in Salem, Oregon is named after him. In 2002, a TV movie starring Jason Alexander of Seinfeld fame was made to dramatize the 1917 winter when Gilbert earned his place in history books as the man who saved Christmas. And that is the story of A.C. Gilbert. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're celebrating Christmas this weekend, Merry Christmas. And if you're not, have a lovely week or weekend, whatever it is anyway. Um, You can let me know your thoughts about this episode on Substack, Twitter, and Instagram, where my username is unrulyfigures. If you have a moment, please give the show a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other folks discover the show. Now, this podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Castellanos-Clark. My research assistant is Nico Angel-Gargiulo. If you are into supporting independent research, please share this with at least one person you know. Heck, start a group chat. Tell them that they can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts, but for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content, come over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at hello at unrulyfigurespodcast.com. If you'd like to send me something, you can send it to P.O. Box 27162, Los Angeles, California, 90027. Until next time, stay unruly. Unruly.